exactly clear There's a man with a gun over there Telling me I got to beware I think it's time we stop Children, what's that sound? Everybody look what's going down I'm C.J. Layton coming to you from inside the Phantom Radio Studios in Lake Wales, Florida home of the premier radio bowling talk show. Long ago, Bowler's Journal International called Phantom Radio a pioneer in the field of bowling podcasts because the show was regularly scheduled at the same time each week. The late Kegel owner, the great John Davis, told Len Nicholson to start this program because, quote, people need to know what you know, end quote. This PBA and Bowling Writer Hall of Famer has now recorded over 1,200 shows and has featured over 425 guests since 2002. 20 years plus of bowling knowledge, story sharing, and true expertise. Phantom, we need to know what you know. So Phantom fans, here's your host, Len Nicholson, The Phantom. Well, thank you, CJ. And a reminder that Phantom Radio is presented by the Kegel Company, the number one lane maintenance company in the world. Well, Phantom fans, this week we're continuing our popular tribute shows, and helping us is a frequent guest that you all love. He was a PBA Rookie of the Year, and he became the PBA Player Services Director for 22 years. He won a PBA title and more than one ABC Eagle. He's in the PBA and USBC Hall of Fame, and he's a true historian. So here he is again, the great Larry Lickstein. How you doing, Larry? Welcome back to the show. Uh, I'm doing great, Len. Thank you so much for having me. As usual, you do uh, such a great job. And uh, looking forward today to uh, who we're going to talk about, but I'll let you announce that, gentlemen. But it's great to be with you. But it's good to hear your voice, Bards, and, uh, you know, we're right in the midst of all that hurricane stuff down in Florida, and I'm glad that you and your family are safe, and all of our friends. We've got plenty of friends down there, but it's always something, and hopefully everything will work out all right. But, you know, as you know, we've been paying some tribute to some of the great players from the past, and we are very lucky to be out there throughout the golden years. And I know that you love this guy that we're going to talk about, I know you bowled with him, and you bowled against him. So tell our audience who we're going to talk about this week and next week, too. Well, obviously, we have the honor, you and I, to remember this great bowler who was not only uh, a champion, four- or five-time PBA champion, two-time USBC team champion, 1970 and 72, but he was one of the most popular bowlers as we traveled the United States, the late, great Butch Gerhardt. I had the honor and privilege to meet Butch uh, in the summer of 1969. I joined the tour in early June of 1969. My first tournament was Mel's Redwood City Bowl. And then we went up to um, Seattle. And then the third week of that summer was Portland. And there was a good shot on the left. And I was the leader going into the last game. If I beat Allie Clark... I win the tournament. It's only my fourth tournament as a PBA member. And in my first tournament, I bowled the title match. So I thought it was easy. <laughs> Little did I know. <laughs> but anyways, in that event, I bowled against Butch. And in the position round game, I lost 222 to 189. 
and went from first to fourth. And Butch and McGrath went around me in a big match, 279 to 269. But I cemented a relationship literally with Butch in that event. Within that 10 months, him and Johnny Petraglia and Ernie Schlegel and Mike McGrath and myself and Butch won the Classic Division Eagle in 1970 in Knoxville. And the total amount of titles on the team at that time, I think Butch had three, uh, Johnny had one, and McGrath had three. So seven PBA titles. And considering Dick Weber bowled that event, he had, you know, 18. And getting back to Butch, he was, in, in my mind, the perfect personality for the team. He's, number one, he was the loosest. You know, Ernie, Ernie's Ernie. Ernie, Ernie would complain about solid fours and weekends. And Johnny, Johnny <laughs> could have a temper. And McGrath was a little snurdy at times. You know, he would, he wouldn't mean it, but he would say the wrong thing. Sometimes people didn't like him because of that. And me, I was temperamental. You know, one minute I was happy, next minute I was kicking a ball return, yelling out an F. But Butch, Butch had the demeanor that everyone loved. You couldn't find anything to knock Butch about. And his game was very unorthodox. He drifted 15 boards from right to left. So right off the bat, because he drifted more than anyone on the tour, and the fact that he was left-handed, you would think that naturally the righties would pound him. Well, it's just the opposite. They loved him. Everybody loved him. And he had the perfect name, Benjamin Franklin Gerhardt. I called him Ben. I never called him Butch. And he was named after Benjamin Franklin, who signed the Declaration of Independence. So... He had a very unique name, a very unique style, but his personality is what drew everyone to him. He was uh, the first bowler to wear two different pant legs, and he'd wear a green shirt with orange pants and a yellow shirt with the purple pants. And, of course, Guppy got onto that later and brought it to the next level by uh, Taylor making some outfits that were so unique and different. But Butch liked to bowl every program. He liked to socialize after the program. He liked to sign autographs and he liked the cocktail hour lifestyle with himself, Jimmy Godman and Don Glover and Jimmy Certain and several guys that liked to sit in the bar and have a beer and talk to the public. And he was an extremely popular man and loved by all his competitors. Uh, it was one of those situations where again, yeah, I have a right personality to be liked by everybody. It's not that easy. And, <laughs> and, and he had it. It was natural. It wasn't an act. He was funny. He was a joker. Harry Golden loved him. The press loved him. The, uh, the players loved him. And his teammates, which I was uh, one of his teammates, uh, 70, 71, 2, 3, 4, and 5. I had the honor to bowl with Butch where the team won two Eagles. We had two seconds. And 70, 71, 2, and 3, we went 1, 2, 1, 2. So we were in the hunt to win that eagle every year uh, at the Nationals in the Classic Division. And, of course, um, I bowled them, you know, many times uh, when the, the tournament, uh, you know, had a decent shot on the left. He wasn't going to miss. I would miss more than him. There would be good shots on the left. I wouldn't make it. He usually made it. But he, he was so unique. And then, of course, in 72, when he married his wife, uh, I made the finals in Waukegan. And before the last eight-game block, he decided to marry Susie on the lanes, and they brought in a justice of the peace. <laughs> and Harry Golden asked me and Bob Alstott 
to hold pins out on the lanes in an arch. And Susie and Butch went through the pins and got married by the Justice of the Peace before the last eight-game block in Waukegan. And to me, and I could be wrong about this, this was 50 years ago, I've never heard of it again. So it might be the only time it ever happened in PBA competition, but he married her, and 10 minutes later, he was throwing practice balls. <laughs> and that was Butch. That, that just tells you so much about Butch. We miss him horribly. I know when he died, I, I, you know, I know it was in 81. I know it was in Fort Lauderdale. And when the word came, you know, through that he had died in a car accident, uh, I've thought about it for 41 years. And I know you have, and Johnny has, and, and Ernie, and the guys that loved him. And, you know, some of them are gone now, but died way too young. That I know. Way too well, young. That's for sure. You know, even though he did die young, there's so much you and I can talk about with him. And as I mentioned earlier, we're going to take two weeks. Uh, to talk about Butch, it could probably take us 10 weeks if we put everything in there. But, you know, he was part of that squad, the G squad with Gavin and Glover. And, and when I first started, uh, I started rooming with those guys. And like I've said before, if you want to have fun, just hang around with those guys. But, uh, you know, you kind of mentioned his style, which was really unique. Do you have a quick story about, uh, about Butch that you could tell? Well, I'm trying to think. I've got one that's really funny. When I started drilling balls um, in uh, the fall of 74, uh, the only people that would come to me were lefties. And then when Jay Robinson led a tournament in 75 in New Orleans and got on TV and told Burton and Schenkel that I was the reason he led it, I selected the ball. I gave him a weight he never used, and I changed his grip. So he hadn't cashed for a month. He leads a tournament. But with Butch... I wanted to drill as many balls as I could. And in the fall of 75, it's a hilarious story. I get sent a ball. Somebody brought a ball to me. It was a Brunswick crown jewel. And it was one of the earliest labels. It wasn't like a normal crown jewel label. It was almost like the ball was an experimental. And somehow it lasted through time without being drilled. It was a 16-pound ball on the box until I weighed it. And it weighed 16 pounds, 11 ounces. <laughs> and I said to Butch, there's no way I can get the weight out of it. He says, well, try. Somebody gave it to him. Somebody brought it to him. Do what you can do, Litchie. So we weren't allowed to use slugs. We weren't allowed to. We didn't use finger grips. Nobody used grips. Every ball was drilled with three raw holes, some two finger holes, as well as a weight hole. And I calculated that I could get four holes in it and get 11 ounces out. But the problem is all the holes hit in the center of the ball. <laughs> so you could talk into the thumb and you could hear, you could hear out the weight hole. So, so I weigh it in. It's barely under 16 pounds, but as the ball's hitting the pins, there's no energy absorption in the core because there's a void, a large void. All the holes meet at four, four and a half inches into this ball. They're all crossing one another. And if you look in with a flashlight, you could see the flashlight come out the other, the other holes in the dark. <laughs> so he's bowling with it. And as he's bowling with it, we're in Newark, Ohio, and he's bowling pretty good. I, uh, we didn't have a step ladder. So he's, he's in the top five and he's, he's used it the whole tournament, but by about 35 games in, it starts to disintegrate and he's showing it to me every shot. There's less and less cover that everything's moving because it's, it's just become unsolid. You know, it's like a building you uh, 
you know, you cut one beam and uh, the weight shifts to another beam and you cut that beam and all of a sudden you got to collapse. Well, bowling balls are no different. If they're hollow inside and they're all being thrown 18 miles an hour and they keep whacking pins sooner or later, they're going to start to fall apart. And this ball is falling apart. And I'm an assistant tournament director at this time. And now it's falling apart to the point where there's crap on the lanes. So we've got core and we've got plastic chips on the lanes. And now I got to go out and I got to wipe it up. And now the, the boulders are unhappy and everybody's coming over to look at the ball. And it's, it's disintegrating. And I disqualify the ball, not him, because it wasn't his fault. You know, the ball was legal on the scale. And I told him, you got to get rid of it. You can't have that on the lanes. We can't re-oil. It's going to, balls are going to be going in the air. And I had to go out there and pick up pieces of plastic and pieces of core. It's the only time in my life, in my 22 years, that I had to do that. And naturally, I drilled the ball. And naturally, I drilled it in a way that no one would do. Uh, even in that era, nobody had four holes hit. I mean, <laughs> think about it. And um, so that is a weird story, but a true story. But in Butch's case, I think more than anything that was unique was he would draw people into the bar just so they could watch him and Godman and Glover and Jackson, you play golly golly. And, <laughs> and there would be an audience and there'd be 20 or 30 people looking at each other as you guys would play golly golly. And you are the last group that did it. That's how old that game is that nobody even knows what the hell it is anymore. But I watched you guys do it. Butcher, Butcher Godman would always get it. You know, they would always get the question for golly yeah. golly. Yeah. I watched you guys do that as a kid. I was amazed. I had no idea what the answers were. And I watched you give your clues, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> and it was a fascinating thing in the bar because it drew everyone in because nobody knew the answer but the bowlers and nobody knew the language but the bowlers. It was a bowlers language that was never, ever, ever written down the language of golly golly. Am I correct? Exactly right. In fact, that started with Carter and all those guys in the Budweiser's, and it went back to those days, and it got passed down slowly but surely, vowed never to tell anybody how we, how we did it, and that's why it lasted so long. But there was another fellow that knew about it, and, and I got to talk a little bit about him before we go any further, and, and that was the great Glenn Allison, because Glenn is – He's taking a sponsorship on our show, and I want you to get your pencils and paper ready because here's a chance to get a one-of-a-kind souvenir. It's a brand-new Glenn Ellison 900 shirt, and you can enjoy a discount from Phantom Radio. So this 900 shirt has an image of Glenn on it, and it says, 900, I did it. So call his friend and manager, Jerry Hale, to order it at 714 309-7587 and be the first in your area to get this historic souvenir shirt. So remember to call Jerry at 714-309-7587 and be sure to mention that you heard about it on Phantom Radio for your discount. All right, I know you got a lot more to talk about, Butch, but I got to tell you one of my favorite stories. We're rooming together, and as usual, you know, he's a bowler. And he's got to get a check this week or else he's got to go home, blah, 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 blah. And so we're fair lanes, and the lanes were terrible. And the first day, he shoots 20 over. 
And he goes, I'm not going to make it. I'm going to withdraw. I'm going home. I says, but you got many more games to go, 16 more games, or I mean 12 more games. He goes, no, nah, I'll never make it. It's going to take 100 over. I only got 20. The best I can get is 60 over. So he goes out that night, and he shoots another 20 over. Now he's 40 over, and he doesn't go back to the room. He goes and sits in the bar until they close. So the next day, he's got six more games to catch up. And the estimate now is 120, and he's 40. So he's 80 pins out, and he's only got 40 over so far. He's only got six more games. There's no way he's going to make it. So that night he goes in the bowl, and I don't go watch because I'm, I don't want to see him struggle and, and get mad and all that. And so finally, he's supposed to come back to the room at 1030. He doesn't show up, and I get ready to go down to do the lanes at 1 o'clock in the morning, and he walks in the door. And he closed the door, and he's got that look on his face, like, what happened? And I go, how'd you do, Butch? He goes, you'll never believe it. I says, what? He says, I shot 87 over without a 200 game. I says, what? 87? So did you make it? He goes, I made the finals. He says, because I shot 198, 197, 196, 198, 198, and 300. Wow. Yeah. He made the show, finished like 10th, made enough money to go for the next couple of weeks. But that was a Butch Gearhart story. That was in in the early 70s. And he said those exact same scores all the way up to the day he died. He never forgot a game he bowled. He was unbelievable. Oh, yeah. He would get frame by framers as good as anybody. He would tell you every time he left a six, a half seven, uh, a buck, a chop. He could give you a frame-by-framer a year or two down the line. Very interesting story about our our first Eagle win. Now, you got to remember, this is a great team, and they got Ernie leading off. And we had Ernie leading off because Ernie was throwing a three-dotter, a rubber ball. And usually in the last five feet, if we knew the lanes hooked on the left, Ernie's ball moved to the right at least one inch in the last five feet. So Ernie's, Ernie's ball's fading. So he would hit half pocket and always leave a five pin. It was, it, if the five pin ever toppled left, we would think the ball weighed 21 pounds. I mean, Hoyt Wilhelm had more revs on his knuckleball than Ernie Schlegel. So now Ernie gets up and doubles the 10th. I get up and uh, spare strike. I don't remember what Johnny did. I don't remember what Butch did. But Butch was great with the math. McGrath gets up in the 10th frame. And we all tell McGrath... He needs a strike to win. And he throws the ball, and he's ready to just pick it up and heave it at the spare because he knows we didn't win. And we stop him, and we realize we erred by 10 pins. He needs the spare to win. He's left a one three six nine. Misses the head pin, gags it, throws it out the window. He threw the ball straight anyway. So if he missed two boards left, it would go to the baby split on the left. I mean, he threw a rope. He's got to make the one three six nine for us to win a team Eagle, which is very prestigious. And he hits the head pin so light that off his hand, we know he's missed it, but it sort of fades a little. He threw the ball, you know, real straight. He touches the head pin so light that it stayed on the pin deck, but it fell. The head pin did not make it to the left kick plate or the left flat gutter. And we won the Eagle. So now we're all, you know, ABC champions. And in 71 in Detroit, we finished second. And then in 72, we won in Long Beach. And then in 73, we finished second to the Strohs with Mike Totsky and Samarja and uh, Bill Spargo. 
I think Bob Hart might have been on that team, but they were they were a fantastic team. But Butch, Butch was loved. One thing I have to say, there's no doubt in my mind that during his his reign of about uh, 12, 13 years from the you know 66, 67 to when he left in 78 or 9. He was one of the most loved pro bowlers in the history of professional bowling. You couldn't find anything wrong. And if you didn't like his approach, you didn't knock it. And nobody drifted 10 boards. Nobody. Nobody started with their left foot on 40 and slid on 25. Nobody did. Nobody. <laughs> Nor their right foot on 40. But he did. You know, when he was playing a gutter, he, uh, if he was playing up five, you know, he'd start with his right foot on 20 and then just walk towards his target. That's the way he was taught. There are people that walk towards their target somewhat, like Gary Dickinson walked towards his target. Uh, most guys either walked straight or even drifted a little left, but it was very rare that you saw people really walk 15 boards towards their target on the approach. It was one of the first approaches in my life. Ted Hannes later on came on as a righty and did it and had a great career where he, he drifted 20 left. You know, if he was playing the second arrow, he, he would slide 30 and, and start off with his right foot on 20 and slide 35. He drift 15 left, right? <laughs> so there are people that have made it work. But Butch, the fact that he – I always see, say this now because back then lefties, you could find a lot wrong with lefties, whether it be their personality, their style, their egos. Butch was loved. Butch was, Butch was loved more than any left-hander on tour, including Earl. He was everybody's favorite. They loved him. The righties loved him. The fans loved him. The pro-am bowlers loved him. I loved him. We all loved him. And yeah. uh, I know how much you loved him. Um, uh, our, our, our thrill was we, we had that time together in our lives. So long ago now that we lost him. But never forgotten because of you, man. Never. No, no way. In fact, uh, I'm even in touch with Susie, his ex-wife, uh, from the old days. And, you know, on the website, you might be able to take a look on Susie's website. She has a picture of her son. Looks just like Butch. It scares the hell out of you when you see the picture. That's Jamie, right? Her son's Jamie. Jamie? Exactly right, Pards. Yep. Wow. Looks just like Butch. In fact, uh, we talked a couple times. I told him a few stories, and I could just hear him shaking his head on the other end of the line. Because you, know? <laughs> you, you don't know anything about your folks when you die early, you know, which Butch did. And he didn't know much about his dad, but he loved all the stories, and uh, we're going to come back again next week. You got a closing statement you want to say, Pards? Well, as usual, Len, I know you have so many great guests. You know, Barry Asher and Bill Hall and yourself have done an unbelievable job uh, remembering some that have passed away and many, obviously, that are still with us, thank God. But thank God for your show, Len. Are you 20 years now? How close is it to 20? Well, we started in 2002, so... Well, <laughs> We're in yeah, your 20th we, just had, year. we just had our 20th anniversary in April. So, wow, yeah, we're about 1,300 shows now, Pards. Wow, I think if anybody's listening, they realize you're a lifer. You know, started off in the in the 60s being a fan of Jimmy and Billy over there at Belmonteo Bowl, and went to the same high school, I think, with Jimmy yeah. and, and Bill, and then obviously went out on tour and became an iconic figure in the world of bowling. And John Davis scoffed you up and and you helped him design his lane machines. And now you have this radio show that's been on 20 years. You're a tournament director in the Western region. You wore a lot of hats, brother. Well, a lot of hats. A lot of hats well, for the big stick. <laughs> One thing that's for sure, 
It's put some age on me. I'll tell you what. Uh, I get tired watching bowling now. Just one game, I get tired. Well, it's not the game we knew, but one thing's for certain. These guys that are out there bowling for a living that make that telecast, it's the same mindset as it was in our day. Yeah, the equipment's too different. The styles are still different. But you still got to beat the best in the world to make a living. And these guys that are doing it are the best in the world in this environment. I think you and I know that. The game's environmental, and this environment features different styles. No different than it did in Butch's ages or, or day when he could drift like that or Billy Hardwick's style or yeah. mine or Godman's or Johnny's. who were all product of our environment. And uh, these kids today are a product of this environment, and they're great. I watch every show. I'm amazed at the versatility and the moves and the knowledge they have about today's cores and covers. I mean, they're they're so educated as to angles and ball reaction. Of course, in our day and age, it was, you know, one ball and you threw it and there was no reps and there was no truck, yeah. you know. So I played my part in that a little bit when I got going with the drilling and whatnot. But these kids today at 15, 16 are more knowledgeable than some of us guys were at 30 when it comes to equipment. They've got oh, oh. it down because of the internet and the uh, seminars and the teachers that have all got coaching uh, degrees uh, from USBC and have went out on their own and, and decided to learn the sport. And thank God we still have that because uh, that's yeah. what's keeping competitive bowling alive. So my hats are off to all the veterans and you, of course, and the ones that still love it. So we, we still got a good group left. All right, you hang around, man. I'm going to be calling you. We're going to do another show next week. And Phantom fans, the old clock and all does say we're out of time. And I, I hate it when I have to say that because there's so much more we want to talk about. But I look forward to talking to all of you again next week when Larry will be back. We'll have part two of the Butch Gearhart story. So I want to thank our sponsors, Storm Bowling, Brad Edelman and the High Roller, and Dave Kowalski the bowling guru from Michigan. So for Phantom Radio, this is the Phantom. When you're down and troubled and you need some love and care and nothing, well, nothing is going right. Close your eyes and think of me, and soon I'll...